Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. Welcome to Girl on the Gov, the podcast, breaking down politics as we know it and removing all the bullshit. (laughs) Because politics needed a (laughs) rebrand. Welcome back to Girl and the Gov, the podcast, you guys. This is the last episode ever, I'm just kidding, of 2021. Oh my god, don't even do that to me. I know, that would never happen, you guys. We're here forever. Wait, you know what is actually weird? This is so funny that you say that, because I literally was thinking about earlier, just like, you know, doing a little mini reflection, which is so not like me, but whatever, whatever, out of body experience. And I was like thinking about okay, like where we were with the podcast last year at this time, like yeah. what you know, obviously all our dreams and aspirations for it and all that mm-hmm. shit. And like obviously, you know, still have like so many more of those that we're, you know, going after. And I like in my head, like there was never a question in my mind that like we would still be doing this now. I was like it's no. like I knew. I was like, there is just no shot that this is stopping like, I even like now like I don't see an end in sight which is like obviously Same. amazing and thank you mm-hmm. guys for listening to us ramble and interview all these amazing guys like mm-hmm. hell yeah but like isn't that so funny like like there's so many things like I think about that all the time doing. too especially like I'm sure you're the same way like in the age of just constantly being anxious about stuff you know, yeah. and it's so easy to be negative and be like, oh, this is probably not going to work out. But I've actually never thought that. Even in the hardest times of this, we're both incomeless at the moment. It's just we're going after it. And it's like we because we just know it's going to happen because we manifest. That's that is freaking true. Which, by the way, before we get into I have like 10 million topics that like I need to talk to you about because okay. I've been in quarantine and oh. like have seen no one. And <laughs> she's going crazy. I've got. I've gone crazy. The Washington Post actually has, like, a really freaking funny TikTok right now of, like, how they, like, limited the isolation period, of course, after I just went through it, like, whatever. Mm -hmm. And granted, I also still don't know if I even had it or not because I had one test that was negative, one that was positive. I was like, I'll just isolate because I don't have any more tests. And the thing that I was going to say pre that is since you guys, you know, obviously have been with us this far, I mean, we are manifesting, you know, continued growth share this episode share the podcast with a friend like make sure you know you have someone that you're like oh my god they love podcasts like send it their way maybe they're going to politics whatever it is bada bing bada boom get it done yeah totally we're also get into this later because it's one of our top stories but there's big shit happening next year politically so it's really time to like check in on your friends i think a lot of people took a political break this year which is like I get it. <laughs> 2020 and just the la- the four years prior to that exhausting. were exhausting, a nightmare. And once, you know, we got that orange orange guy out of the White House, <laughs> you know, we all kind of just like took a breather. But, and, I, and again, I get it. But it's time again. We'll tell you why in our top stories to start checking on your friends, making sure they're registered, making sure they're getting engaged because we got civically, hurdles. Civically engaged. Not necessarily engaged to the boyfriends of theirs that you don't like that much. So I downloaded Bumble Business. Oh, yeah. And I was like, let's try this. Let's see who's out there. Like, who can we connect with that would be really, you know, fun. And literally every single person on Bumble Biz is a creepy old man. Or maybe he's not even old. I'll need to download it here and see what the vibes are. I am so curious. And when I tell you, I have not come across, unless maybe there's something in the app and I don't realize, like, Maybe it's supposed to be that way, but that wouldn't make any sense to me. I swiped for over 30 minutes. I didn't see one woman. I was literally not a single one. And everyone was like dead AF, like murder vibes. I will post Mm -hmm. some of like the screenshots 
that are like particularly egregious to our story like when we post this episode somebody's gonna be I, like um that's my dad that's my dad <laughs> <laughs> that's my uncle what are you talking about i'll be like i'm so sorry but like i was just so shocked and then this is what really got me this is the kicker i got this notification when i was using it and it was like only like the women can speak first on the app like sort of like how you know like bumble dating is designed that like women yeah that's start bizarre the conversation. but i was like okay so we're pitching men all day long as it is right now i'm on this thing and i what like that it's doesn't make any women. sense i understand the concept if it's designed to like stop like creepy messages but like i'm gonna yeah. get those anyways so like what and those people just need to be reported like Ugh, anyways, that's wait, crazy i hope you're oh my update is just that um i deleted hinge so i think did i tell you that yeah, I deleted it. Yeah. I deleted it before I went home for the holidays. Not not because of that, but I just was like, I'm just over it. And I, feel I just that. need a break. I totally feel that. And I think I was just, it was one of those things where it was becoming something. I just was bored and just went on to my phone. Like my just muscle memory went to go check it all the time. And then I was just scrolling forever and like trying to find somebody. And it's like exhausting. And now that I don't have it, I mean, there's moments where I'm, like, on my phone, and I'm, like, what app can I check next? And I'm, like, it'd be cool to check in for a moment, but I'm, like, I really don't. I don't miss it, which I thought I would. That is interesting. How am I, I going to find a date to go on? No idea. No clue. But I at least just wanted to, like, take a break. Maybe, like, maybe for January. I'll just, like, stay off on January in January. Some then... people do dry January. You do no dating month. Yeah. yeah. No hinge January. Honestly, um, I highly suggest like a- it. A good like moment to like do a break from it. I mm-hmm. so I attempted to do a break. I was like, I'm gonna take a break, but like obviously, like if I meet someone in person and they want to go out, like fine, like I'll make that exception. But like that never happens, you know? Never. Spe- like Ever. whatever. I go to this freaking party, and I walked away with so many guys' numbers. I can't even tell you. I walked away really. With like it was like I. It's like kind of the running joke that I just like cleaned up. up. No, like, it was like, literally trendy. when you stop trying. When you stop trying and you stop looking, that happens. And that's what I thought would happen with Hinge. Because it just started to become, like, desperation mode. I would just, like, again, go on when I'm bored. Just, like, desperate to find someone semi-attractive I could possibly match with that might have some good banter. And it's just... Um, And I'd rather meet somebody, like, at a party like that. That's, like, my ideal situation. It was totally ideal. Best of... Best wishes to all of these guys. Because I didn't end up liking any of them enough. (laughs) One of them does listen to the podcast, so I should probably shut up. Samantha, just duct tape yourself. Duct tape yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Regardless. Hey, John Doe. Thanks for listening. What would you say, though, like, if John Ossoff asked you out? Like, Mm -hmm. I know he just had a little baby, but, you know. had a baby? Yeah, I had a baby. Oh, my God. No. I know. I know. I'm I'm so sorry. That just ruined my day. I'm Why so sorry. If he asked me out on a date, I would 100% go, obviously. Okay. Just, but apparently that's not going to happen. He has a happy family life, so <laughs> I'm not one to break that up. I, I won't do it. But nevertheless, we can we can move on through this episode because we have a great interview today, but we also have some top stories and, again, like some – you know, things to walk away with into 2022 that we want to get you guys, get you guys sorted for some political resolutions. We'll be talking about that later. So let's just get on into this episode. Um, before we do introduce our, our guests today, just again, reminders on some housekeeping items. If you're looking for an internship in the spring and you are in college and need college class credit for an internship, hit us up. You can go to girlonthegov.com careers and check, check it out there. It's a social media research marketing internship so if any of those things spark your interest it's also obviously political because that's who we are if any of that sparks your interest then shoot us an email all the details are there if you are not looking for an internship but you want to be involved in the girl in the gov community and world join our brand ambassador program that's also on our website all the details are there and the sign up sheet is there so go check it out join our community of like-minded women and people who are looking to get more politically engaged and informed and we also provide networking opportunities and job opportunities in the political space so that's there and then last but not least our merch is live we relaunched our merch so if you didn't get 
merch last round, you can now get it. There are options there, different colors. If you did get something and you want to maybe like try something new, highly suggest. Um, all, all of that is also online. Go to girlonthegov.com, go to the shop tab. That'll bring you right to it. But all of this will also be linked in this episode description. But housekeeping is done. Samantha, would you like to introduce our guest today? Yeah, so our guest today is running for the coveted seat of the mayor of Los Angeles. So Angelinos, this episode is definitely one for you to pay attention to because he is a candidate in the running. He is currently the LA city attorney, so maybe familiar to some of you. Without further ado, here's Mike. So I've always been focused on public service since I was uh, a kid. I grew up in a family where public service was the thing to do. My dad was an educator in public schools for 60 years, and he came to that because he'd been a prisoner of war in World War II to the Nazis. And he told me when I was growing up that when he survived that experience, he committed himself to find the most important work he could do. My, my father passed away about six years ago. He was just a wonderful person. That, that lesson of trying to find what matters the most really stuck with me. My mom grew up in a neighborhood of Los Angeles called Boyle Heights, uh, a neighborhood that was the quintessential melting pot here. It was a community with Latinos and Russians and people who were Jewish and Japanese Americans and others. And when I was a boy, she emphasized to me what it felt like the day all her Japanese-American friends were suddenly gone like that because they'd been interned by our government in camps in Manzanar and other places. And she taught us, you know, you have to stand up for people in their hour of need. So I grew up with these values very deeply infused into the ethos of my family. And one of my first jobs was to be chosen to run a place called Bethsedic, which means House of Justice and provides free legal services to the most vulnerable people in Los Angeles. Uh, seniors, people who are disabled, losing their houses or their health care, and they had no money, but they desperately needed someone to advocate for them. So a lot wow. of my motivation to run for office derives from lessons from my family, only some of which I shared with you now, there are many more, and my experience um, as an advocate for people in great need. So. I ran for city council, but I, I quit my job to do that. I walked door to door for seven months and ran against very famous people. I, I was supposed to get clobbered when I took, mm -hmm. ran for office. It was considered to be a real long shot, but I won. Yeah. So that's what sort of brought me into elective office in the first place. Wow, amazing. Let's talk about this position of running for mayor in LA. Can you kind of explain what attracted you to this position and kind of what your goals are, are here? Sure. So, you know, I've been a city council member. There are 15 city council members here in Los Angeles. And in that role, I was selected to be in charge of the budget for the council. And I had a lot of authority when I was in that job. I've been a state legislator. I was the majority leader for policy in the California Assembly, and I chaired the Judiciary Committee, a lot of policymaking authority. And now I'm city attorney, where I don't have policymaking or budget authority in the city. I have other important executive authority, but I don't have those roles. And I can see as city attorney ways that the city can be improved, can do better, important ways on issues like homelessness and affordable housing and public safety and so forth. And so it's an opportunity for me to bring to bear all the experience of accomplishing tough things in tough moments, which I've been able to do in each of my jobs and bring that experience to bear as mayor, this is a moment in the city's history, unlike any that I can remember, there are all these crises that are colliding now. The pandemic and its health consequences, the economic fallout from the pandemic, the homelessness emergency that I mentioned, an affordable housing crisis, you know, calls for police reform and violent crime is going up. All these things are happening at the same time. And so this is a moment I decided when one needs to really step in and I, I always tell folks, we don't define ourselves by the moment when things are easy. It's when things are hard that we really find out who we are. And this is a moment that's very hard. It's also a moment not to be a spectator. It's a moment to step in and do everything I yeah. can to make the city better. So that's what's going on. Absolutely. Which speaking of like all of these things colliding and trying to find solutions, 
you know, sort of begs the question of the specifics of your campaign, right? Like you get into office, what are some of the solutions that you have that are A, top of mind and B, that voters should really know about? Sure. I will differentiate myself from my competitors in this race because I have a number of very specific ideas. And I say that we have politicians who focus on slogans and sort of gauzy generalities. And there are times when that could be an appealing thing to to do to promote one's candidacy, but not when things are the conditions are like they are now. Now we need concrete, pragmatic ideas that actually will change what's happening on the street. So when it comes to homelessness, for example, my first day as mayor, I call a state of emergency. It gives the mayor additional authority. It also galvanizes the public. I consolidate all the executive authority. The mayor's in charge of every single city department under the charter that governs our city. I consolidate that under a single person focused on the issue of homelessness. I create a strike team in City Hall where I get the general managers of all the key city departments and say, if you want to keep your jobs, you will decrease the time it takes to cite and approve homeless and affordable housing. We change our street engagement strategies so that we say to people authentically who are experiencing homelessness, we have a place for you. It's decent, it's safe, it offers services you need, it is not safe on the street, and you can't stay here because our public spaces need to be safe and accessible for everybody. We need to have that equation balanced. You know, I, I wrote a piece for a newspaper recently where I said there are a lot of false choices that surround the debates on homelessness. You're either compassionate and humane, or you think there should be order and safety on the streets. That's a false choice. We need to be both as a city. Other false choices, temporary shelter versus permanent housing. A lot of, of voices on this issue, including the LA Times editorial page, focuses on the need for permanent supportive housing. And I couldn't agree more. That is the gold standard and the need we have. But you have to be having temporary shelter right now because I was in an encampment right. a month ago and people are dying. Literally two yeah. homicides in six weeks, in six months. So these are some of the ideas I'm promoting. And something else. You know, I heard a city council member the other day talk about mental illness and issues on the street and accurately say, you know, that's a county of Los Angeles issue. That's not a city government issue. Here in LA, the county and the city are different jurisdictions. And again, that he was right when he said that, but it's the wrong answer. The right answer and the answer I'll pursue as mayor is I'm going to reach across the jurisdictional lines that no one in our city cares about, right? No resident cares whose responsibility it is. They just want to see people who have mental illness on the street getting services and protection and help that they need. So I'm going to be collaborating very deeply with county leaders, going to them to Washington, for example, to change the rules that govern how the county gets funding from uh, the, the capital so we can expand our services and be more creative with them, focusing on changing the, what we do on the ground when it comes to people experiencing homelessness. We need many more what are, what are called teams on the street, multidisciplinary teams that include mental health specialists to engage mm -hmm. people who are experiencing homelessness. And substance abuse is another big issue where one could say, that's the county's job. Or a leader could say, nope, we're gonna deeply collaborate and we're gonna have goals. Because what that's missing right now in the city when it comes to homelessness are concrete goals for diminishing the number of people experiencing homelessness on our streets. I'm a big believer that as a leader, you have to have goals. And it's scary for leaders to quantify goals because you can be measured against them and people could hold you accountable for them. So these are some of the elements of what I want to push forward as mayor when it comes to the issue of homelessness. There are others. In addition, I want to talk about a couple other issues that are really important in the city right now. One of them is the very basic issue, our government isn't working. Things, there's a much too distant relationship between the resident on the street and her representative in City Hall. You know, in LA, with 4 million people, there are 15 council members. So when I was a city council member, my district, and I was, that's the, the low level government closest to the people, my district was the size of Buffalo, New York, or Boise, Idaho. Just Crazy. my district. Crazy. Right? So, so I proposed cutting those districts in half and having the lines of those districts drawn by an independent commission so politicians aren't drawing their own lines. I want to see government in LA be restructured so that the, our leaders are much more intimately connected to the neighborhoods they serve and much more accountable to their constituents. 
There are other issues, too. You know, public safety in Los Angeles. Violent crime is going up. Gun violence is escalating. I've been one of the nation's leaders on gun violence, not because it's some abstract issue, because it was very real to me. When I was on the city council, there was a nationally prominent shooting that occurred in Los Angeles where a racist went on a rampage, shot a Filipino-American postal worker, and then trained his gun on little kids at a Jewish community center. And I went to that scene as things were unfolding and encountered some parents who had just heard their five-year-old, the age of my daughter at that moment, just had been shot, taken to the hospital, and asked if I would join them. And we waited in a little tiny waiting room to see if their son would survive, which he did, fortunately. But experiences like that really change how you think about what matters most in mm -hmm. your role as a politician, as a public servant in elected office. And so I've written most of the city's most important laws on gun violence, a couple of the state's key laws. I became city attorney and I worked with the district attorney of Manhattan. So I wanted to establish the nation's first ever coalition of prosecutors focused on gun violence because Republicans and Democrats alike care what prosecutors have to say. I've been working on this issue in great depth. And yet in our city right now, gun violence is increasing. Totally. So for a city attorney, you know, I just sued the largest distributor of what I call ghost guns based in Nevada because LAPD has confiscated more than 800 what are called ghost guns that aren't traceable and no one wow. needs a background check to get them on the internet. Eight more than 800 in criminal investigations just in a year. Um, like four times what happened just a few years ago. The other steps I wanna take in that regard and as mayor, I wanna elevate these, I, I know the issue of gun violence. I, it requires not just a crime suppression strategy, it requires having gang interventionists on the street and people who interrupt violence on communities. It requires after school programs, I reckon park programs to be coordinated closely. It requires prosecutorial strategies to be tied to assuring that people who are illegally using guns are accountable for that, a whole range of things. And I say this at a time when just a few months ago, I was at a housing project in Los Angeles and South LA. There have been seven shootings there this year. There is a, an advocate for police reform who has said, we don't need social workers with guns on our police force. And I couldn't disagree more because I went to this location to try to tell those kids who are there that some adult in LA cares about them in the wake of a shooting. And let's not be too antiseptic about it. I'm talking about a man lying face down on the playground and a child shaking that person and saying, daddy, daddy, please wake up. That's what we're talking about. So when I was there, I saw very tender relationships between the police officers who were there and these kids because LAPD sends teams of officers in for to, to be in these neighborhoods for five years. So they learn the community and the community learns to know them. So trust and respect happens. So officers become guardians in a community as opposed to uh, driving by. And that's the kind of reform that I want to expand upon as mayor. So this is a key issue. The notion of defunding the police, not at a time when we are seeing an increase in violent crime in Los Angeles. I want to invest in a police force that de-escalates violence, that is trained to deepen these community ties that I just referred to. I want to see mental health professionals be the tip of the spear, interacting with people having mental health issues on the street. So reform can go with supporting a substantial and increased police force. The two are not mutually exclusive. They go together. So these are just some examples you asked about right. policies. I'm trying to be very specific about things that I'll do when I'm there. Great. And I, I do have a question to like kind of step us back like a moment. When you mentioned coalitions across sort of the country, New York and LA, and sort of connecting these issues that we're seeing, you know, it's usually not a one city issue, unfortunately. You know, there are usually patterns that sort of emerge across the country, which unfortunately we're seeing. And I'm curious, like, how a coalition like that works. Like, how does that operate? Like, what's sort of the almost the news information sharing network? Like, what does that sort of look like? Yeah, I'll, I'll be very specific about it. So I reached out to Cy Vance, who is the district attorney of Manhattan, to propose we create this coalition. And we began making phone calls to prosecutors across the country. And I thought we'd be great if we can get like a dozen prosecutors to join with us. This group has 50 people in it now across the country, red states, blue states. It's a nonpartisan organization. And here's some things that we've done. You know, I want there to be benefits from this. We're not just, not just a talking point that we're doing this. 
So for example, a big issue in cities across the country is the fact that if you are the victim of domestic abuse, you are 500% more likely to die if the abuser has a gun. So here in Los Angeles, I led an effort to change the protocols in the city so we disarm domestic abusers. So then working with this national group, we combined with a group called the Consortium for Risk-Based Firearms Policy and wrote a template, um, a blueprint for how every state in the country, which have different rules on domestic violence, can get guns out of the hands of domestic abusers. President Obama was in office when we did this. The White House tweeted this report nationally because it was of real consequence. And it's been used to implement change across the nation. We went to Capitol Hill, our group, because there was a law proposed that would require every state to recognize the concealed carry permit granted in any other state. Why does that matter? You know, concealed carry permit means you can carry a gun on your person in public. Why does that matter? Because there are states where felons can get guns. There are states where the restrictions on getting handguns are almost non-existent. Allowing anybody in one of those states to walk into California, to walk through downtown Los Angeles with a concealed <laughs> weapon, or my colleagues in New York said, picture people in Times Square confronting folks from a state where there were almost no requirements to get a, a concealed carry permit or to get a gun, and those guns are there. This is dangerous stuff. So we went to Capitol Hill to meet with senators to identify how we can stop this legislation from happening as a team. And I remember, I mean, you ask about how things work in, in real life here. I remember Cy uh, Vance and I meeting with John McCain. Uh, John McCain was at that point a sponsor of the bill we were trying to defeat. And just the three of us spent at least a half an hour together in Senator McCain's office. And I have to say, by the time we were done, I thought there was a real possibility that the senator was going to oppose the bill that he was a sponsor of because of the, the, the dialogue we had. The bill never got to a floor vote, so we'll never know for sure. But this is how things work. And these coalitions have had all kinds of benefits across the nation where I never had relationships with most of the prosecutors who were part of this team. And now we're friends. We share best practices with each other. I remember the district attorney of Multnomah County, which is where Portland is located, Oregon, was going to be going to the state legislature of Oregon to try to get universal background checks to be a requirement. He said, could he asked me if, if Cy Vance and I could sign a letter he could take to the floor as he was going to testify on this issue? Could he show that our group was in favor of what he was trying to promote? Those are the kinds of things. It could be issuing a blueprint for how to change policy across states in ways that will protect women. It could be going to Capitol Hill to make every major city safer in the wake of a, of a proposal that would cause havoc. It could be working with a prosecutor in a different state on legislation in their state. Many different ways. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's super interesting. And I also just love even going back to your answer previously to all of these very specific solutions are so necessary, especially during a campaign. I feel like you always get those, you know, bucket answers. And I appreciate the specific nature of your answers. We always try to push here, like how important local politics are. Right. And to be able to see and hear those like solutions that can happen on the local level is is so cool and i think you got you have a really amazing campaign platform there moving forward we want to get into our i have a stupid question segment and to start we want to ask the question of what is charter reform and what does that mean <laughs> so i would say first one of the things in my life is because i've as an elected official and i've also taught until my staff there is no such thing as a stupid question <laughs> so sorry but the whole headline the whole premise of this segment is wrong so um you know so we have individual laws that are enacted those are called ordinances but we also have the charter that as this as the u.s constitution does the charter of the city the, the is is our constitution it defines what the city can can't and can't do so there are certain limitations that are imposed on actions the city council and the mayor can take for instance on the charter so charter reform basically means putting it's the equivalent of amending the u.s constitution in this case it'd be amending the charter of los angeles sort of an analogous situation. Voters, voters have to do it, is my point. Okay. 
All right, okay, so we got the voters in there. Speaking of voters, another question is, what is a neighborhood council? And is this unique to LA or California, or is this sort of a more general thing we see across the country? Yeah, in some cities across the country, they have neighborhood councils too. I brought charter reform to the city council back in the 1990s when I was a city council member. And one thing that I wanted to do was institutionalize something I'd created in my own district, which, which was these subgroups called neighborhood councils of stakeholders in a defined neighborhood across a broad spectrum, business owners, educators, parents, uh, homeowners groups, others who you know employ people in the community at different ages involved. So you have stakeholders reflecting a range of perspectives in a defined neighborhood who are proposing ideas that might make their way to the city council, who are working on the ground to do, say, a street improvement project or something like that. As an array of ways to, to get government again closer to the people we serve. So we have 99 neighborhood councils and a couple extra ones that are not specifically at, but they're close enough. Call them 101 groups in, in LA who operate this way. They get elected in the communities they represent and they propose and uh, implement ideas on the ground level. There are other cities around the country that have similar networks. And again, one thing I want to do in cutting council districts in half is to move even farther in creating more close ties that engage members of our neighborhoods with their leaders. Makes gotcha. sense. Okay, interesting. So moving on to this this final one, what is a strike team? And is this also, you know, limited to LA or how does that work? So it's just, it's just a, a term that I use to describe acting in an emergency as a unit. And in this case, it's a way for me to define what it means when I convene the general managers of the city who have anything to do with the siting and approval of housing, that's either for people experiencing homelessness or affordable housing, and to say, this is our strategy, your jobs are on the line, we need to be acting like this is the emergency that it is and not mm -hmm. this is not business as usual anymore. So that's what I mean. I love that. I, a, yeah. love that. B, I'm going to use that for probably everything in my life. Yeah. Like, strike team. Like, hello, assemble. We need to get to Chipotle. Thank you. But <laughs> yeah. regardless of that, moving on, or more circling back than anything to sort of the topic of homelessness and the housing crisis, there just seems to be sort of a, an ongoing, not just conversation about, but need for, you know, solution and figuring out what works and what doesn't. So I want to get into some of the programs that have either been put out there or are existing and whatnot and sort of where they're at. And we want to start with the HEART program. So we're hoping sure. you could give us a little bit of background, like what is it, how did it come to, you know, fruition, all of that jazz. Yeah, good. So in my office as city attorney, I've said to our staff, we need to push the limits of what the city attorney's traditional job is, because as I stated, we have an emergency here. So how can we do that? One way among many was to create this program. It began in a very unique way. Again, I mentioned the county and the city are different jurisdictions. The county was operating what they call their homeless court program. They put out an application for people to compete to take over that program in a very unusual move. We applied as my office to do that, and we got the grant. And we decided to change the paradigm. So that program first, before COVID, looked like this. We would hold sessions throughout Los Angeles where, well, let me, let me take you, at least uh, in, in your lines here, to Hollywood. So picture a location where we had a food truck offering fresh fruit from a farmer's market. We had a place you could get tested for sexually transmitted diseases. We had a location where you could get a hepatitis A vaccine. We had a location where people could get access to job referrals and so forth. And we had a room where a number of members of my staff and volunteers with computers tied to the court system said to people experiencing homelessness, we will trade you. You have outstanding fines and citations and warrants that are precluding you from getting access to a job or services or housing, we will erase those. If you get connected to the services that we've arrayed here today, then I'll have, and then literally in the same like gymnasium style room, we would have housing, mental health counseling, substance abuse and so forth, all these services there. And we would hook people up right away, connect them to those services 
in exchange mm -hmm. for getting rid of this impediment that they were confronting. So that's what the HART program has done. <clears throat> and we've done that in these sort of community fair contexts, like I described a moment ago, and also go very specifically. For example, I was just this week in a village of what are called tiny houses here in Los Angeles, which are sort of eight foot square physical structures arrayed in a, as a little village. And during COVID, one person sleeps in these rooms. After COVID, perhaps two will be there. We, as a heart program, we go to those locations and offer the same services. You know, we'll, we'll trade you, we'll get rid of these outstanding things in exchange for you, assuring that you're connecting with other services to lift you out of homelessness. It's one of a number of programs we have. You know, I, for example, when I became state attorney, wanted to be very aggressive about what is called patient dumping, the unlawful discharge of homeless patients from medical facilities to Skid Row and elsewhere. And I want to change the vocabulary, too. You know, I said I was on a national news show talking about this when the anchor was discussing an, an incident of this unlawful discharge of patient dumping uh, in Baltimore. And I'd heard the vocabulary, you know. Today, Hospital X allegedly discharged 50s or 75-year-old person to the street in cold weather. And I said to the anchor, you know, what if we changed the way we talk about this? What if we had said, last night, this medical facility took my mom in a hospital gown out of the hospital and forced her out of the hospital and to the bus stop adjacent to the hospital to fend for herself? If we were talking that way, wouldn't we act with a different level of urgency than we're doing now? Right. And and so, it, whether it's the HEART program, our efforts to sue medical facilities, to get them to change their practices and pay penalties when they've been involved when we allege as patient something, there's a whole spectrum of things that we've done in my office. Makes sense. Wow, that's, a, I love that. It's a great idea. And then, sorry, you, you did say though too, like that, did that stop in COVID, the HEART program or how, where it changed that because we had to, we had okay. to change the dynamic because we couldn't have these big in-person get togethers, right. especially at the beginning. So we continue to evolve them. As I say, now we actually go in small groups to locations throughout the area of LA County where people experiencing homelessness are located. And we literally go to them as opposed to saying there's going to be right. an event in this location. Okay, that makes total sense. Well, moving to a different program we want to hear about is the LA Door program. Can you tell us a little bit about that, what that program does? Sure. So LA Door was an outgrowth of a change in state law. In California, there was an initiative called Proposition 47 that passed. It changed a bunch of felonies to misdemeanors. My office prosecutes misdemeanors, not felonies, tens of thousands of them. Two categories, basically, of change. One had to do with petty theft, and the other with the possession of drugs. And the basic premise of the voters of California, when they enacted Prop 47, was it doesn't make sense to send somebody who is drug addicted to a state prison without rehabilitation. They're just going to get more drug addicted Let's have them get services in the communities where they are. That theory sounded great, but when the proposition passed, it became clear to me that that wasn't what was happening. And so I convened extraordinary meetings in my office of the public defender and the district attorney and the presiding judge of the court system and the, the police chief and the sheriff, all these top dogs in the justice system to see if there were systemic changes we could make to inspire people who formerly would have had a felony, were facing a felony, to take drug rehab as an alternative to being prosecuted. And because there was no incentive to do that really anymore. And we couldn't think of a way, the group was unable to change the system because the voters had altered the entire justice system through their act. So we decided to apply to the state for a grant. And the grant we got created LA Door, where we sent a team with a nurse and a substance abuse expert and a mental health expert and a formerly incarcerated caseworker, like in groups to the streets to some of the grittiest encampments that you've ever seen to reach out to people before they commit any offense because the judicial system wasn't capable of handling them well get them the services that they need I, I went out with them it was an extraordinary thing i mean and dangerous work too i will say i said to one of the guys who was formerly incarcerated you know this is not the safest thing in town where we were located what do you do and he said to me i agree with you we have safe words that we use if it gets too dangerous we say x and we all get out of there that's that program it's had to evolve again everything has evolved in the course of the pandemic and so on and what we're trying to do is really institutionalize that kind of program in the justice system more broadly where we do take every step we can to take somebody who is drug addicted or mentally ill 
who may have committed a low level offense and get them to the services they need to change their life because simply some minor punishment isn't going to do much of anything for anybody. So that's what we're talking about. Lots of solutions, which is also really exciting and obviously brings some hope to the whole, you know, sort of situation, but also sort of brings the question about of the difference between the crisis sort of happening in LA versus the rest of the state. Like, would you say it's sort of the same across the board or would you say that it's very, you know, LA has sort of its own idiosyncrasies within, you know, sort of this larger issue? So it depends on the issue. I would say when it comes to homelessness, for example, San Francisco is confronting some very serious issues. When it comes to the issues we just discussed in San Francisco, a number of stores like Walgreens, like drugstores, for example, have been closing down because they're concerned that the changes in state law have made it too easy for people to commit theft from their stores and literally close a drugstore altogether in a, in a neighborhood. There are some you know, smaller towns confront different levels of crisis. The number, the raw number of people experiencing homelessness in Los Angeles makes everything else pale by comparison though. We have 41,000 people experiencing homelessness on our streets, about 28 and a half thousand of them on a given night don't have a place to go. We're the biggest city in the state. We have the biggest problem in the state. So sure, other cities have issues, these issues to be sure, and others, but our problems are magnified both because of our size and because I think we haven't taken every step we could to help address them. I don't want to do that. Absolutely. Which is super exciting because we need new solutions. We need new sort of ideas coming into the mix and definitely sort of hearing some of your solutions before of what you, you know, intend with your campaign and in office is great. And I think this is a great moment to sort of share with everyone, you know, where voters can find you, how they can learn more, all sure. of sort of, you know, the litany of Instagram, your awesome campaign video, obviously. Give us the, the spiel there. Yeah, before I do, let me just say, you know, I, we're talking about a lot of concrete ideas today, and that's mm -hmm. really important. I've always thought that candidates for major offices like mayor need to be able to really relate to their constituencies. And for example, tomorrow, I am kicking off a program that no candidate for mayor has ever done. We're gonna be going to every one of the 101 neighborhoods in Los Angeles for community events where I listen to what people care about very labor intensive thing but it is very much my thing that is a part of what it means to be a leader is to be connected totally. another part is to inspire people right one has to be able to have a message that lifts people up that unifies mm -hmm. people and recognizes that we need each other and i very much intend to be that mayor that's how i've governed as city attorney and in addition to the big vision and the inspirational moment Leaders have to be able to roll up their sleeve and actually actually what they're talking about. And what I'm trying to offer voters here is vision, inspiration, connection to their communities, and a record of actually delivering and accomplishing big things in difficult circumstances so that people can know as mayor, I've done it before, I'll do it again. So they can go to my website. Folks can go to Mike4LA.com. That's our website, Mike4LA.com. Among the things you'll see there is this video that you mentioned. So this is going to be, as you can tell, an unconventional campaign. So uh, Jason Alexander of Seinfeld fame narrates the video. It's three minutes long. I don't want to spoil it for people who haven't seen it yet, but, but tens of thousands of people have watched it. All I can say is it is not conventional, but it does tell, I think, in, uh, you know, in a way that I think is pretty compelling. Uh, it says a lot about who I am as a person, but in a humorous way and a self-deprecating way. You know, I think a lot of yeah. politicians are afraid to sort of be, you know, uh, exposed that way, be self-deprecating. But I think that's part of what it is to be a person. Yeah, so, be human. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly so. So I urge people to join us. You would think that I would know off the top of my head our Instagram handles. Of, I don't know that stuff in my, my campaign. <laughs> we'll add them in the episode yeah. description so everyone can go find it. Yeah, but good. Well, thanks very amazing. much. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. This has been so insightful. All the solutions are incredible and refreshing to hear from a candidate. So thank you for sharing all of that with us. And of good course. luck with everything. We'll be pushing this out to all our LA listeners. Thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Top stories of the week. The last top stories of 2021. For the record, Maddie thought it was still 2020. <laughs> well, it is. 
It, it is still it 2020. Is. And just in the theme of this being the last show of 2021, it's quite the headline to, to leave you with because it's very important. So with less than a year to go until the 2022 midterms, Republicans are increasingly bullish on the prospect of a red wave that could flip both chambers of Congress and end Democrats' unified control in Washington. And that's not even including all of the state races and local races across the country that are also happening, the governor's races. There's a ton, a ton of crucial, crucial elections happening next year. So this is just talking about the federal politics and Congress, but these elections are happening everywhere and they're all super important. So heading into 2022, Democrats are finding themselves on their back foot defending their very narrow House and Senate majorities and President Biden against just uh, a lot of attacks over stubbornly high coronavirus cases, inflation, the bloody Afghanistan withdrawal, and more. His approval ratings have nosedived into the low 40s and they have not stopped falling, which is also gonna affect next year and how people vote because often the president's approval rating going into any midterm election is very crucial on how people vote and there's also midterm fallout just how in 2018 there was a huge blue wave after trump so that's kind of what's what's happening here but the house is viewed by many on both sides of the aisle as likely to fall into republican hands and given democrats very razor thin five seat mar- uh, majority there however a, despite a favorable Senate map for Democrats, the party's 50-50 majority in that chamber could be toppled as well. I will say one little like observational thing on the Democrat side that I have seen successful thus far. We'll see like where it goes. We'll see if there's like some candidates. There are two that are veterans, including of time spent in Afghanistan, that are running and doing really well with fundraising. One of them being Brittany Ramos Taveras, who you guys have heard on the show. If you're at our event, you met her there. And then also Lucas Kuntz. That's not how you say his last name. It even. Says- <laughs> oh my God. He probably gets that a lot. I remember it says it on his website too. Like Kuntz? it was like, <laughs> it's K U N C E. Kuntz. You. <laughs> <laughs> And the fact that that was the way that I thought, okay, all right. I don't know. I don't even think I know how to read anymore. I really don't. But oh, anyway, he is also a veteran and is really outspoken about the generally like military complex at, or industrial military complex. Is this the one you're in love with? Maybe. He's so hot. <laughs> He's so hot. Sam like texted me a thousand times the other night. Like it was probably like 1 a.m. her time and <laughs> she was obsessing over this man. So I just want to preface whatever she's about to say about him. She is also in love. So I could skew You know what? And when you're in love, you do crazy things. It's no, true. He, he honestly, he has a really interesting platform and I'm like excited to like see what he does with it in this particular mm-hmm. race. Okay. Uh-huh. How are you? And anyways, he's also single and 39, but he has two kids. So anyways, I totally did not oh. look this up. I'm just saying. Well, ladies. Maybe you can change your mind about children. I mean, yeah, it's fair that that stops them from having to come out of me. It's positive. <laughs> did they come That's up a true. nanny? I'm sure. I'm sure you can get one. Yeah, I don't know. Oh. Sorry, finish your point. Well, I'm so distracted. There's two um, two races. Two races. His oh, is one of them. But I do think that it's interesting that obviously you have this issue of this like very flashy, in a bad way, withdrawal from Afghanistan. Really, I feel like started to be the catalyst of Biden's numbers going down, down, down. And then everything else happening, like sort of keeping them there. So it's interesting that these two Dems, obviously these are experiences of theirs, not taking that away from them with genuine, you know, policy and strategy coming from that that they're saying but like for them to harp on this as a strategy to winning is mm-hmm. really a important interesting and something to watch as other candidates join all of these races pre-primary because i think some of the ones on the dem side that are going to come out ahead are going to be some of the ones that are also veterans and i think from a, a voter standpoint usually veterans do pretty well so mm-hmm. yeah that is it is 
So veterans out there, run for office. We need you. That is... Well, anyways, back on topic here as to like where we were in this conversation is basically there's a lot of GOP optimism going on. There's a lot of different factors, both like historic in terms of how midterm elections typically go based on like sort of who's in the presidential office, who has the majority, et cetera. And then also just sort of current, you know, waves, themes, et cetera. So the party, to give a little history to it, the party in the White House usually loses seats in the midterms. GOP waves have helped flip the House towards Republicans in 2010 and in the Senate four years later, while blue wave helped win Democrats back the lower chamber in 2018. So there's usually a lot of this like flipping flopping, like whoever is like more in charge. I mean, typically like you see someone in charge, especially if you like disagree with them, you're like, oh, hell no. It like pisses you off. And then Mm -hmm. you might actually go and vote. I mean, the same thing kind of happened in 2020, right? Like think about like all these Dems coming out being like, we are going to get Trump out of office. Like, that is how people on the other side of the aisle feel about Biden being in office and a Democratic majority in the House. So just given okay. that context, like people on the other side can have very similar feelings. Anyways, on top of that, Biden's approval ratings have been tanking. Like they honestly, like the only thing lower on the totem pole than Biden's rankings might be the amount of vegetables that I've eaten this month. So, you know, those <laughs> those things are really lining up nice. Good to know. But, uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's really the health and wellness podcast that this is. Health and wellness. Uh, as I'm sitting next to my slice of cake that, yeah. Anyways, again, health and wellness do not come to me for health tips. Anyways, this lower approval rating does not obviously, like, help, but it's coupled with a lot of specific issues obviously or without goes without saying that coronavirus and the economy are a classic combo the last few years especially Mm -hmm. this year and it's really helped fuel that gop advantage in the generic congressional polls that are out there which now paired with gerrymandering and what that's going to do to redistricting is creating a situation that's not exactly favorable to democrats because what happens at the top unlike you know economics it does actually trickle down here so Unfortunately, that mm-hmm. sentiment towards Biden often, and in this case, will likely also pull down the ballot to some of these other candidates. <laughs> Taken together, Republicans see a path to taking back at least the House, particularly given its pretty narrow margins. And recent waves have flipped dozens of seats in the GOP must net just five in 2022, which is definitely doable. So um, in the map drawing process, which is still underway, why is this taking forever, could alone get Republicans the seats they need, which is absolutely wild that just like redrawing district lines is enough to give a certain party a win. I, it's, uh, what, yeah. But already Republicans have fortified their advantages in states like Texas and Georgia, where there's unified GOP control of the state government and redistricting efforts. So scary scary stuff especially looking at obviously georgia flipped blue last year in 2020 which was wild and crazy but the fact that because of redistricting that can completely go back to being very red is super concerning and is truly just voter suppression in 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 broad daylight same with texas texas was also like almost turned blue people really were like what so both states are really going to go back to probably being pretty pretty bright red you know we will have an episode on redistricting with brian derrick who was on and explained to build back better for us and he is going kind of going to come on again and explain what's happening with redistricting in january so keep your eyes peeled for that we'll be explaining it in much greater detail because lord knows that brian explains everything better so all those factors are really leading democrats to privately but now honestly publicly the fear is starting to come out, and that reality has apparently set in with at least some Democrats on Capitol Hill. Roughly two dozen are retiring from the House and either to leave politics altogether or to run for another office. By the end of 2017, the year before the Republicans like swept out of the House majority, 25 House Republicans had announced they would not seek re-election. And so GOP pollster Robert Blizzard, what a name, um, said, quote, they are running for... They are running for the hills. I think they see the writing on the wall, which is crazy. I didn't really realize that that happens. Like before midterms, if it's like seeming like they're gonna lose, people just retire. Like, right? Well, yeah. Well, bitches. I 
think it is super interesting. Like, I feel like that's, like, just such, like, the coward's move to me. And I feel like... Totally. And this, to me, this goes on both sides of the aisle in terms of, like, oh, losing and shows the true colors of, like, do you... Are you doing this job because your general desire is to represent the people of your district and put their best interests forward? And to me, when you're like, eh, I'm just not going to win. It's ego and it's money. And it's, like, this job is never supposed to be that. Totally. I mean, but at the same time, it's kind of like a blessing because regardless of party, like if that's really your mindset of like, I'm going to lose my seat, let me retire so I don't look a certain way or whatever, then yeah, get out of the way and like somebody else who is willing to do that job should do it. And I hope that that maybe happens here is that, yeah, retire if you're an old incumbent who's been sitting in there doing jack shit for decades, get the hell out and make way for somebody who's willing to actually do the job and not just sit there and take in all the corporate money. So that's my spiel. Agree, and I think to like cap that off is this will be an opportunity for a lot of them candidates. Some of them have come on the show. So great moment to like go back and listen to some of our interviews with candidates, like with Alex Hunt, who is running in Pennsylvania. Like there Mm -hmm. are some really awesome candidates that we featured and will feature that have the potential to knock out some of these old farts to say things with a little less elegance. But anyways, my dead grandpa (laughs) would be very happy that I used that phrase, so you're welcome. Anyways. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. No, I love it. However, I know we just probably made everyone like be like, oh shit, like the world is ending. Get it. Totally feel the vibe. But there like is still some hope there's some strategy like we say all the time democrats do not need magic they just need marketing so if you are working for a campaign and you need some eyes eyes on stuff we're your girls hit us up but for other hopes loves dreams etc the sliver of hope in a lot of this is the fact that the GOP is really divided, right? You know, you think of this country pretty polarized at the moment, but like, so is the GOP. We've got the Trump ghost that like never really kind of has gone away. So that's its own party and disaster. But then a lot of the Republicans continue to follow the Trump endorsement. So you've got that mess. And then you have the ones that, a lot of them actually are the ones that are retiring, <clears throat> that do not have Trump's sort of seal of approval and that creating an issue. Yeah. But that also, <sighs> just, it... it it's gonna be a big thing for voters too. I think like that's kind of what was the big conversation in these twenty few twenty twenty one races was like, yeah, who's going to align with Trump? And if you are, you have to be very careful of how you do that because especially if coronavirus is still a thing, what people remember will remember most is how Trump handled coronavirus. And if a candidate is tied to Trump, it could backfire for the GOP but that's you know a strategy for Democrats potentially but I think what the biggest thing and the biggest strategy is going to be is that we need people to vote and especially young people and so we want to move into our little political action item resolutions for 2022 moment because again like we said earlier in this episode you know a lot of people probably like took their foot off the gas politically after 2020 and we fucking get it we get it it was exhausting. Trump was exhausting. You know, we did what we needed to do. We got him out of office. And so, so people kind of like retired from their political activity for the year. Um, it's time to start checking in on your friends and getting them engaged again um, because it is time to vote again. In just a few months, there's primaries. And then it come November 2022, there's a huge election that everyone needs to be paying attention to and voting in and there's a lot of hurdles that we clearly laid out here just now with that last story that are going to need to be broken down and I think young people are really the key to all of this to combating all of this and this GOP red wave young people are the key and so I think everyone needs to make it their duty to check in on their friends, making sure they're informed and registered to vote and all of the things. And also listening to Girl on the Gov, the podcast, obviously, joining the Brand Ambassador program, staying engaged, staying informed. Those are the things, one of the one of the resolutions we've laid out here for you. But we have, we have quite a few more because, again, it's yeah. time. It's time to put your political caps back on and make sure all your friends have them on too. 
And we have two newsletters, two newsletters that are really awesome. So one is Catalyst 20. So look, if you've been stalking the pages of Girl on the Gov, you probably have heard of Catalyst 20. It is a newsletter that comes out every Monday. It gives you action items right to your inbox so you can get your week started with action items. Think about topics that maybe you haven't quite before. You see one petition, then you start looking for others, right? So the Catalyst 20 newsletter is that great starting point for getting your activism started for the week. We love to see it. And then another newsletter by our friend Daisy. We love this one. And it's the Work Isn't Done newsletter. As you can imagine, takes on a similar theme. This newsletter obviously kind of points to what it does, similar to Catalyst, pushes you to keep doing that work. So fighting forms of oppression, figuring out what those action items are to do. This newsletter also does that for you in such an awesome and succinct way. And do we have a third newsletter? The no. Oh my god. Because that is they all do different things and they're all absolutely incredible but the no is like a super digestible political news newsletter it's politics in five minutes super just like bite size and gets you informed so sign up for that all this will link in the episode description by the way but yes three newsletters for you i think that will be helpful and i know that sounds like a lot but you guys 2022 it's so important so it's time to do some work it's fine Totally. Like you can do this stuff in such an easy way. Like go get a pedicure, go get a pedicure. Mm. Yes. This is what you're doing while you're aboard and you're trying not to literally like scream when they're like doing all the feet stuff because like, (laughs) let me tell you, I'm so ticklish. Like I'm always about to like freak out and I have to distract myself so hard so that I don't actually kick them because I'm so squeamish. Just because we're on the topic of the no. Also check out Mm. Know Your Vote because they are sisters <laughs> and know your vote tells you like what exactly will be on your ballot next year in a super digest- digestible way so the primaries are literally just months away so that's just like a good way to learn about what's on your ballot because that can also be very confusing and again it's not just about the house and the senate it's about down ballot to your mayor to your city council to your state reps all the things governors everything we have a whole highlight reel on our instagram with a bunch of awesome political influencers and activists that provide great resources, information, backstory to everything going on. Brian Derrick, who we've mentioned a few times on this episode, who we'll be having on in the coming weeks. Again, he is a political strategist and he also does really awesome breakdowns of issues. He has a series that's like a whiteboard series that really gets into it. So highly recommend. Then we also have a few so good i like love them i'm like oh my god this is just oh i learned so much and it's just like so quick it's everything he's also hilarious and i just love him i love him so much a few others for you guys to watch include elisa luncheon she is super awesome she is a attorney and she breaks things down from a legal standpoint which we love to see and love to get sort of that insight there victoria hammett who also breaks down issues and just provides some really interesting sort of more like liberal democrat commentary her tiktok is awesome and jamira burley who is also sort of an an activist uh and big in this space and she does the social impact for adidas amongst other things so and two other people who are doing that are good friends ben sheehan and natalia ramos and they we've talked about it on this show many times you advertise for them but citizen power is fun and digestible like civic lesson basically and they are both incredible and they basically just teach you how to be the best citizen you can be and how to use your citizen power so all of this be it the newsletters links instagram handles we will put all of this in the episode description so you can have your 2022 political resolutions as you're sitting there making your just resolutions for your life incorporate some of these political ones and again check on your friends make sure they are also doing the same because we need everybody next year housekeeping reminders once more internship spring internship go check it out at girlinthegup.com slash careers for an ambassador program sign up is also on girlinthegup.com our merch is live so go get your girl in the gov merch they're so cute and another housekeeping item we will not have an episode next week we're taking the week off but we have some ig lives you can tune into and we'll be back january 12th for a fresh episode and happy new year everybody i 
wish you the best in 2022 and be safe on New Year's Eve, Samantha. I'm looking at you. Watch the champagne intake. Um, And again, get ready for 2022. Let's make it the year of the youth about. There we go. That's the goal. Manifesting. We freaking, we've got this. You just said it so well. I've got nothing else to say. Well, we'll just leave her there. You guys, happy new year. We'll see you Whee! on January 12th. Hey, see you next bye. year. <laughs> <laughs>